0: Brigham Young was all about, let's let's get out of Nauvoo. He even writes to his brother saying, leave the dark, gloomy clouds of Nauvoo behind and come join us.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we're going to be discussing chapter two of Saints, volume two, and it's called Glory Enough.
1: Today we're joined by Brandon Metcalf from the Church History Department. Welcome, Brandon, and can you tell us a little bit about what you
0: do for Church History? Sure, it's great to be here. I uh, am an archivist for the church, and so uh, I deal a lot with different records issues, a number of research questions that come into the department from a variety of sources, and that's about it in a nutshell. He's
1: a fantastic resource. He's um, been extremely helpful on some projects that I've had the opportunity to work on with Church Historians Press. Brandon has just been a delight to work with. He's really one of the experts in uh, the church history department, so I feel really blessed that you could take time out of your schedule to be here with us. Brandon, in in our chapter today, we're talking about just the second chapter of Saints, where the Saints are just on their way moving west. They're sort of out of harm's way at the moment, but. Can you maybe set the scene for us about what's happening at this time and what the Saints are facing?
0: So, this is a real difficult time for the Saints uh, there in Nauvoo. For a while after the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith in 1844, I think perhaps they thought it would mellow out a little bit, but it rears back up. So, by the time uh, in 1845, there's some real serious mob threats that are continuing. And so they make plans to leave. They were going to leave in the spring, but because of intense persecution and things going on there in Nauvoo, they actually determined to move that up and leave in the middle of winter and to cross the Mississippi and and head west.
1: So one of the things I found surprising, I don't know about you, but Shaylin, but I always thought they sort of crossed the river. Some of them, the river was frozen and they just went across and others came later on barges or whatever. And then they like sort of never looked back and they were gone. But it seems like maybe that's not exactly what's happening. Even after the first company goes across, they're still doing temple work in Nauvoo. And people are even going back and forth to retrieve goods and sell things. And tell us a little bit about how that worked.
0: Yeah. So you you really, and it's important to understand this, that you really get several waves Uh, Not all the saints just cross in uh, one pretty company and all walk across the river and are gone. Uh, It takes some times. And so really in the beginning of February 1846, you get this first company that becomes known as Camp of Israel that crosses the river and sets up a a camp there at Sugar Creek just a few miles into Iowa. What's Iowa territory? Iowa. the state of Iowa today. And they go over there and they they set up camp. And, And like you said, a number of them still have family, friends, and even belongings across the river, and so it is a little bit of a highway, so to speak, of going back and forth. And most of the saints, well over 10,000, don't even leave until April. And so the majority of the saints are still in Nauvoo when this first wave of saints leaves.
2: And it seems like Brigham Young is, he's troubled by how much back and forth there is. And some people are even trying to maybe sell their property and get something out of it because they just left. So how many, you you said there's about 10,000 people in Nauvoo still, 10,000? It's more than that, actually.
0: So in just this first wave, you get... Numbers, guesstimates are of about 2,500 or so go in the first wave early on in February and into the beginning of March.
2: So they're staying in Sugar Creek. They are. Okay. Initially. And then the rest of them are in Nauvoo. And,
0: and the rest of them are in Nauvoo. So you get the second wave of roughly 10,000 that come across between April and June. And then you get what's called the poor camp, a third wave even that doesn't uh, make it across until the fall. So so it is important to understand that, that we didn't just march in one line across the way, that it was really a process of evacuation. And Brigham Young was concerned and didn't want people going back and forth. He was all about, let's, let's get out of Nauvoo. He even writes to his brother saying, leave the dark, gloomy clouds of Nauvoo behind and come join us while he's in Iowa. So he really is encouraging the saints to push west.
2: One of the reasons that he's pushing to go west is he actually, when he was fasting and praying in the temple before they were going to leave Nauvoo, he had a vision. Can you tell us about this vision that he had?
0: So he does have a vision as recorded uh, several years later. It's reported by George A. Smith, who becomes one of Brigham's counselors in the first presidency, that he is shown this uh, Joseph and a peak, which we now know as Enzyme Peak here in the valley, and that they should go there and settle under that peak, essentially, But even more than just the vision, Brigham Young full well knew that the saints were going to go west. He even knew where they were going to go west. I think that's another story, almost myth, that gets perpetuated in the church, that we think Brigham Young and them set out with no idea. They were just wandering in the wilderness and hoping that the Lord would show them where to go. And that's not how revelation works usually. And so I think we need to give them some credit for studying every available source and map for almost two years before they ever left. So they knew exactly where they were headed.
2: That's amazing to me. And so maybe this vision was just kind of a, maybe more of a confirmation too.
1: Absolutely. Like a culmination. I would invite our readers, if you want to know more about how that decision was made, one of the wonderful sources we have, you can go to look at online at josephsmithpapers.org. If you click on the administrative series, and then click on the Council of 50 Minutes, you can actually read the minutes where they discussed moving to the West, different plans. There were plans discussed to go to Texas, perhaps Oregon country, Wisconsin at one point was considered. But over time, and as they studied it out, it became very clear that they were moving to the valleys of the mountains and to the Great Salt Lake Valley. I appreciate you sharing that. And our listeners can check out those sources on the Josemith Papers website, and I'm sure they're linked from the footnotes from Saints as well. One of the sisters who is in Nauvoo at this time is one of our sort of main characters. She's a real person, not a character, but she's a, someone we're going to follow in Saints, and that's Louisa Barnes Pratt. Can you tell us a little bit about what Louisa's facing at this
0: time? She has uh, extremely difficult. Her family were converts to the church and they come to Nauvoo in 1841. In 1843, you get the first call of of a missionary to the Pacific. Joseph Smith assigns Addison Pratt and a few others to go initially to the Sandwich Islands, which we know today as Hawaii, and uh, they end up in the Pacific. And so he's been on this mission during a lot of this from uh, late 1843 on during when the martyrdom occurs. And now as persecution continues, and they look to go west. And so she has four daughters and herself, and now it's really up to her to figure out how we're gonna go west. And she also has some family in Canada that she hoped to see before she went west. It's hard in 2019 to realize how difficult travel would have been. It's not like she can hop on a plane or even a train at the time to go and see family. So oftentimes, when you leave family, say, over in the British Isles and Scandinavia, where many of our converts come, or here from Nauvoo, to get up to Canada wasn't going to be an easy feat. This is probably goodbye exactly for good. And so she really felt strongly that she wanted to see them before they head west. And she actually feels so strongly that she writes to Brigham Young about that. She says, "If you say the ox team expedition is the best way for salvation, then I'll engage and I'll go and do." Essentially, is what she says, and he mentions that when we get west, Addison, her husband, is going to be sorely disappointed if she's not with them. Mm-hmm. So come west, <laughs> and she does. She gives up the notion that she's going to go visit family and starts out.
2: And I just love her. She, like we mentioned, she's a recurring person throughout Saints Volume One and and now too. In her response to Brigham, she also says, and I believe I can stand it as long without grumbling as any other woman. And I believe that after reading more of her experience, once she makes up her mind, she just seems to do it and does it without grumbling.
0: <laughs> and, and for many years into the future, she's alone uh, yeah. with Addison serving missions. So she's essentially a widow throughout most of her life.
1: Very, very difficult times. Another faithful saint was a man by the name of William Clayton. He wrote the famous hymn, Come Come, Ye Saints. I found it even sweeter to know that when William wrote that, it was after he had learned about the birth of his child, that this was really kind of an anthem to all is well. And I, I anyway, I love that, learning that in the story. There's another character here his name is James Strang. This may be the first time that many of our listeners have ever heard of this person. It's not somebody I ever remember hearing about in a Sunday school lesson or in seminary, but he really was for a time kind of a sore spot for the church. Can you tell us who is James Strang and what is he
0: doing in Nauvoo at this time? So James Strang is uh, converts to the church not too long before Joseph Smith is killed and is quite a charismatic individual, you get the sense. And so when Joseph is killed, we have questions arise as to who's his successor. James Strang comes forward and he claims that he has a letter that Joseph Smith wrote to him basically knighting him, so to speak, as, as the next leader of the church. And so he comes forward and has all these secret claims. He says that he's the rightful successor and ends up taking a number of the saints follow him uh, up to eventually Wisconsin and uh, sets up his own kingdom there. Uh, He even calls it a kingdom. And so that's who he is. He's an apostate, really, and is quickly excommunicated from the church. Uh, This is the same time where you have Sidney Rigdon coming forward with claims to, to the presidency of the church And so Strang and and, uh, Rigdon are are really two in the forefront that challenge the authority of the the Quorum of the Twelve.
1: Definitely an interesting character. His life comes to an abrupt end later on an island in the middle of one of the Great Lakes, as I recall. It's just kind of a wild story. We also have the Nauvoo Temple being dedicated. Again, in the timeline in my mind, I had always thought, dedicate the temple, lots of endowments, head west. And it seems like that's not how it happened. How did the
0: final dedication of the Nauvoo Temple happen? Before we start leaving Nauvoo, you get this massive number of temple endowments that are, are given to the saints. I think Brigham felt that we needed these saints to be endowed with power and with this ordinance of the temple. Before they left Nauvoo, so in beginning in early December of 1845, through like you said, when the the Saints are starting to leave in February, you have about six thousand Saints receive their temple endowments, and, and so was they,
2: that in the attic? Like it they was. had, so they hadn't finished the temple. They dedicate the attic. That's where six thousand Saints receive their endowment. Exactly. And so the rest of the temple, they're still going to finish it, even though they are they know they're leaving. Right.
0: And that to me is an amazing story of faith. You know you're leaving. You know you're going to abandon the temple and and not return. But they were convinced to continue to use resources and money to finish this temple even as they're evacuating Nauvoo. It's just a great story of faith and sacrifice, even to the point where you get some that are over in the British Isles, converts and things that are trying to save up to come to Zion, who are also donating money for the temple to be built that they'll never really use it's a remarkable story of faith. So that that happens. They do it, dedicate the, the attic, like you mentioned. And then uh, a few months later, they do some more finishings on it. They almost complete it in May of 1846. A number of people even come back across the Mississippi River to take part in that dedication. And there's some remarkable spiritual experiences akin to what happened in Kirtland.
2: There was someone in Saints that I had never heard about. Her name's Elvira Stevens. She's a 14-year-old girl. She's an orphan. Uh, her parents died soon after they moved to Nauvoo. So she lived with her married sister, but she wanted to go to the dedication. So she went to this dedication knowing that, you know, another temple might not be built for years and years. So she contributed a dollar um, because the funding for the temple, I mean, it was a lot of expenses. So anyway, I thought this was interesting. She felt the power in that dedication so strongly that After the session, she went back to her camp, but then she went to another session two days later, hoping to feel that power again. But we wanted to kind of give you that context and listen to this quote from the book.
3: Thousands of the saints have received their endowment in it, and the light will not go out, he said. This is glory enough for building the temple. After the session, Elvira returned to her camp, crossing the river one last time. Saints in Nauvoo, meanwhile, spent the rest of the day and night packing up and removing chairs, tables, and other furnishings until the temple was empty and left in the hands of the Lord.
0: It's quite a scene, Brandon. It is. It's interesting to note, too, that Elvira is a teenager, single, and she receives her endowment. And you have to remember that they have no idea when they're going to have access again to a temple. And this is really the first time that the endowments are even revealed to the general membership of the church. As many as they can are going through, including some of these younger individuals.
2: And they didn't do shoddy work on the temple. Do you know what I mean? Like they really, they, they finished the temple, but then after it was dedicated and then they received their endowments, like the quote said, they were just like packing it up and they just left it.
1: Must have been excruciating, honestly, if you spent so much of your time and your energy and then to have to leave. It just seems like such a difficult choice. I suppose the thought of staying there and being mobbed out is probably pushing them, but it still had to be just so difficult.
0: Yeah, there's so many sacrifices that are made, not just monetarily, but with people's time. Most of the individuals in that community, in some way or another, their blood, sweat, and tears went into building that temple.
1: So in some ways, Brandon, it feels like the saints have been kind of let down by those who should have protected them. They feel like the Thomas Ford, the governor, has let them down. They tried for redress in Washington, D.C. and basically said, go talk to the states, we don't have anything to do with your problem. Nobody really is giving them the assistance that they feel like they deserve. Now they're moved out of Nauvoo and some people show up and they're asking for volunteers for a battalion to go to the Mexican-American War. What is this all about?
2: And at this point, how long had it been since they even left?
0: So they begin coming and asking for volunteers for this battalion in June of 1846, so it's just a few months. And really, you're right in the middle of getting that second wave across, and so the saints are strewn across Iowa Territory when they come knocking and, and asking for volunteers it, we should note too that, that Brigham Young somewhat orchestrated this. He knew that they needed some real monetary funds to help get them across. Super cash poor. Mm-hmm. They, exactly. They need cash. And yeah, tell us about how that
1: works and how Thomas Kane's involved.
0: So you have, have a man named Jesse Little who's overseeing some of the uh, mission in the East. And he's assigned to try to go and make contact with the president of the United States to do this. And he, while he's in Philadelphia, he meets a man named Thomas Kane, who's very influential and becomes a lifelong friend of the church uh, going forward and helps us in numerous ways at numerous times. And he uh, is able to write a letter of introduction to help get Little into the, the presence of the president. And so Little makes it known that we are leaving and you can either help us or not. But he's very open, makes it known that we're open to uh, any way in which the country might help us move west. And so at this time, you have the outbreak of the Mexican-American War and what's called Stephen Kearney's Army of the West. And so they decide at the highest levels that there will be a 500-person battalion that will be recruited from the church. And so this is somewhat unique in history. It's the first military unit in America recruited just on the basis of their religion. It's crazy. And so several are are sent out to meet with the church going west, and they meet with church leaders to try to recruit this 500-member battalion in the middle of the church trying to evacuate, not quite sure how we're going to even get across. We're so much further back than we thought. Iowa, for those of that first wave of saints, is miserable. It is winter. It's rains. One person calls it just a continuous mud hole across all of Iowa. So, Iowa, the 300 miles to get across Iowa takes three and a half months. Mosquitoes. It's just, it's, it's awful. This is when Clayton writes, Is him. there? It's just absolutely miserable yeah. across Iowa. So, they're in the thick of this. They're spread across, and we are not happy with the government, as you mentioned. And so I have one quote I wanted to read from one of the members that just gives you a little feeling of how, when these recruiters come into camp, how they feel about it. A man named Zadok Judd, who ends up enlisting in the Mormon battalion, says, this was quite a hard pill to swallow, to leave wives and children on the wild prairie, destitute and almost helpless, having nothing to rely on only the kindness of neighbors and go to fight the battles of a government that had allowed some of its citizens to drive us from our homes. But the word came from the right source and seemed to bring the spirit of conviction of its truth with it. And there was quite a number of company volunteered. And so the only way that this battalion gets recruited is because it has Brigham Young's blessing, and he encourages the saints to enlist.
1: And explain maybe just a little bit, how does payment work? So those that are going, they receive some sort of salary. How
0: does that work and how does it help the saints in their quest to get to the valley? So they receive a clothing allotment uh, for going across and to be outfitted that way. And basically they re- they receive some of the, uh, many of these funds when they reach Fort Leavenworth. Once they're recruited, they march down to Fort Leavenworth and uh, many of those funds are handed over to church leaders immediately. They keep some and send some to family, but uh, thousands and thousands of dollars and, and Brigham Young later even calls that act the, the temporal salvation of the church. But this uh, helps, in large part, finance the move to the West.
2: And how long were all these men gone? And what did their responsibilities include? Because I think it was a little bit anticlimactic, is that correct?
0: It was. And then there's men, women, and children initially, actually. We, we should mention that. There's uh, over between 30 and 40 women. There's a number of children that march out as, as family members. And uh, so they get about 500 enlist. It it takes several weeks to do this and and to twist some arms in in some cases. And uh, they march out and they march about 2,000 miles across the west, but they always seem to be behind the Mexican-American War. So they're never actually involved in any warfare or hand-to-hand combat and things. And they make it out to San Diego and uh, are very influential in a few ways. Even though they don't fight in the war, they're influential in establishing the wagon route across the Southwest United States, uh, which which eventually, it's Mexican territory, but it becomes part of the United States. They also help build up uh, some communities in Southern California, including San Diego, and they're instrumental in uh, routes home to Salt Lake City. They find out that the Saints are gonna make it to Salt Lake, and so several companies, when they're discharged, uh, make their way to Salt Lake and even establish some important routes that uh, many of the Argonauts that come across in the gold rush of California just a few years later use heavily.
2: It sounds like, I mean, I'm just putting myself in the position of a wife left behind with children and trying to figure out how I'm going to get there. But it seems like there were a lot of blessings that came from the enlistment to the Mormon Battalion. And one of those was monetary, which I didn't realize that it was that much money that they received for their service. And then also those routes. That's great information. Thanks for sharing.
0: We do such a good job. We always have, I think, in organizing. You get that that wonderful revelation on the camp of Israel and then organizing companies. And so really, even back then, maybe especially back then, we do a great job of watching out for our own. So even though a number of these wives and children are left in it, it would have been an intense trek across and great sacrifice. They're, they're all part of companies with captains to make sure that everyone's watched out for.
1: One of those women who's making that trek is Drusella Hendricks. And I wanted to just listen to a quote here. She has a son, William, and he's a teenager. And this sounds like an amazing adventure. Mm-hmm. And he wants to go. But Drizella Has a husband, but he's paralyzed, and she needs William's help. But he really, really wants to go. He thinks this is going to be kind of an adventure. Let's listen to this
3: quote Drusilla opened her eyes and saw William staring at her. She studied his face, memorizing each feature. She knew then that he would join the battalion. If I never see you again until the morning of the resurrection, she thought, I shall know you are my child. After breakfast, Drusilla prayed alone. Spare his life, she pleaded, and let him be restored to me and to the bosom of the church. It shall be done unto you, the Spirit whispered, as it was unto Abraham when he offered Isaac on the altar.
1: So those are her words, and I think they're powerful about her experience sending her son with the battalion
3: especially because
2: she said she was furious with Brigham's decision. That's what we read. And you can imagine that. Her husband was paralyzed because of something that happened in Missouri. He was shot in the neck, actually. And so I feel like she would already have some anger and and frustration, and now they have to move in this situation. And so that's an amazing blessing to have that confirmation of the spirit.
0: And William is definitely one of the younger members of the battalion. Uh, I think the average age is about 27, and so he's just 16 at the time. So definitely one of the the younger members of the battalion and goes. And and what's somewhat ironic is that we go out there, we begrudgingly, uh, in some cases, and and especially in her case where she shares the resentment for the federal government of the United States, she sends her son. and it must have been difficult seeing what had happened to her husband in Missouri, the terrible things she had happened, driven from Missouri, now driven from Nauvoo, and and then to give her son, so to speak, to the U.S. government that hadn't been real supportive, sent him out there. And and what's funny is the saints, when they do make it out to to Utah— We end up right back in the United States territory within six months (laughs) of arriving in the Salt Lake Valley. It's Mexican territory. Within a few months, uh, the the war ends, a treaty is signed, and this becomes part of the United States again.
2: So, and when the Mormon Battalion was marching, they didn't go through like the Salt Lake Valley, but how did they surpass it?
0: They go far south down through today's New Mexico, into New Mexico, and then across uh, Arizona into Southern California.
1: You can also learn more about the battalion, the route they took, and other details if you go to the church history section of the Gospel Library. You can read the new topic we have on the Mormon Battalion. And if you happen to be in San Diego, we have a historic site that's run by the church, the Mormon Battalion Center there in Old Town, San Diego. It's absolutely an amazing thing. I've taken my family there. Your kids get to dress up in cool stuff, and they take fun pictures and You get to learn about a true piece of American history and church history in kind of a living place, and it's such a cool place to be. So, Brandon, we appreciate you so much taking time to be with us today. What are some of your takeaways from this chapter? What do do you share with your family and others that sort of impacted you after this reading?
0: first, I was reminded about how important the saints viewed, and we still view, the temple and temple ordinances that they were gonna to go to all that trouble to finish the temple, to get as many through. I mean, even through, many stayed through the night to uh, endow as many people as they could. Uh, second is just uh, the heartbreak that it must have been to leave their, the beautiful city, Nauvoo, and to uh, make those sacrifices to go across. You have all these moving parts going on and they have the faith to follow the prophet, to follow Brigham Young and the, the words of the, the Quorum of the Twelve who were leading the church at the time. And to give up all. I guess fleeing the mobs would have made it a little bit uh, of an easier decision, but still difficult to leave all that you knew behind and venture out to this wilderness that uh, none of them really had ever been in. And then to have the sacrifice of those that enlist in the Mormon Battalion leave their families and the families having to deal with that as they're left behind. It's just such a great story of faith through adversity and the strength of the saints that strengthens me. As we face our own difficulties and challenges, I truly, as I read these stories, can draw upon their faith, and it strengthens mine.
1: I feel exactly the same. We thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'd invite you to go to saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, where you can look at our latest videos. You can look at the topics that we've discussed today. You can connect with us on social media. And you can always email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening.